whenever I'm working with a graduate who isn't entirely sure of what they want to do next, more often than not, they will bring up the idea of teaching English as a foreign language abroad. I don't know why, it just seems to be something that people are keen to explore and talk about. But what if this was something you wanted to do, not just temporarily, but as a long-term career? If you've listened to the bonus episode of this podcast, the one that explains the origins of this particular show, then you'll know I spent a little over a year teaching English in South Korea. But I wanted to bring someone in who had a little bit more experience and how their experience had developed over the years. Before we speak to Jack, I think there are a couple of caveats I need to kind of explain for this particular episode. The first is, when it comes to teaching English as a foreign language, there are a number of acronyms and abbreviations used. TEFL being the one I've used for this particular podcast, teaching English as a foreign language. But you can also hear ESL, English as a second language, and CELTA, Certificate in English Language Teaching. These, sometimes I found, could be interwoven into conversations, used interchangeably. And there's a little bit of that in this interview today. Secondly, and probably more importantly, if after this interview today, teaching English abroad is something you are interested in pursuing over the coming months and years, I need to remind you that some of the things we talked about in this interview are specific to South Korea itself. Teaching English as a foreign language varies very much from different country to country. It varies in pay, benefits, what, what's expected of you. So I would just encourage you to do your research before jumping on board and moving abroad. Not every country has the same approach when it comes to English language teachers. Anyway... That's enough for me. Let's get back to Jack Arkell. Welcome to Graduate Compass, the podcast for graduates who haven't quite figured out what their next step is going to be. So you have a slightly unusual career path. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Initially, I took a degree in journalism and creative writing, joint honours from De Montfort University. And kind of after finishing the degree, and I really enjoyed studying my, my topic, but then having done some spells of work experience, I decided that journalism ultimately wasn't really my thing. And so I ended up in South Korea teaching English, um, which... I think there's some crossover skills, but for sure, I think a lot of people would see it as, as quite detached from, from the initial uh, goal. So I suppose let's start with you going to university. Why did you go to university to study what you did study? Like probably a lot of people, there was never a day when I decided I want to study journalism or I want to study creative writing. I was just always interested in writing and you know, teachers and family members tell you, oh, you should be a journalist or you should be this and that. And so I ended up just kind of coasting towards that thinking, well, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, this, I guess, is what my interests and my skills um, are conducive to. And so in many respects, I just ended up taking journalism without making a, a, big, a big decision to do so. And Jack, when did the idea cross your mind where you thought, actually, this might not be what I want to do long term. So the actual work of journalism, writing articles and using the software, that was great. I felt that that was for me. But then once I did a couple of spells of work experience and realized almost the kind of atmosphere of the job and uh, personality that you need to be able to do that, um, 
I found that I was nowhere near like hungry or ambitious enough that I, I perceived that journalists would have to be. And so I think this is one of those things where you choose a subject on the basis of like the nuts and bolts of it without realizing what it's going to fully entail. Um, and so I just kind of felt that my personality and my, yeah, my, my drive didn't really fit uh, the job that I ended up um, getting qualified to do. So was that something you'd completely come to the conclusion of by the time you finished your degree? I guess by the time I graduated, I realized that I'd earned a really good degree certificate uh, in terms of crossover skills and just almost like a good one to have down on paper. But I wasn't exactly rushing away from my graduation ceremony to to apply for newspapers or, or any media outlets. And so what was your first steps after you finished? Rather than seeking journalism-specific jobs, I was more taking a look for jobs where like a skill in writing uh, would be would be the prerequisite. And so I was looking for basically jobs where writing would kind of get you over the line. And I realized that most of those jobs were those kind of dressed up, um, you're writing essays for other students um, and basically like cheating a system and you get paid uh, per essay. Um, I didn't realize how, how common that was. And that seemed like it was the only job out there unless you wanted to go into uh, media and into journalism. And so uh, I ended up just trying to avoid those jobs, but finding little else. I stumbled across an advertisement for a nine-month uh, teaching assistant role in Barcelona. And basically, I was sold on living in Barcelona for nine months. And it was very, very low paid, but I would be living with families of the students that I'd be teaching. So it seemed like a great package. Um, I was also aware that nine months isn't uh, a super long commitment. So if I didn't like it, I could just, you know, walk away afterwards having had an experience. And then the worst case scenario would just be going back to square one in terms of trying to find something more stable in the UK. So it, it sounds like rather than having a distinct career path in mind, that it was more of a, I'll pull on the string and see where it goes kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess. I've never really thought too many years in advance. I've always just made uh, decisions uh, very short term, which I guess is why I'm working in something completely unrelated to my my degree topic. But that's kind of the way I always approached it and um, hasn't turned out too badly. No, not at all. Um, so tell us a little bit about Barcelona. Was this your first job after university or was there anything else in between? Yeah, it was pretty much my first job um, after university, and it was it was the ultimate entry level job. Um, I ended up teaching English, which obviously I expected, but also a technology class where we build Lego robots, which I just could not do, and so I was relieved of that duty pretty quickly. And so that kind of um, showed me how relaxed this place was. And I was teaching PE. Like my first ever class in the school was uh, a sumo class on the school playground where the kids had to try and throw each other out of the, the circle drawn on the concrete. So I realized from day one that this was very relaxed. Um, they expected that I'd be able to help out the kids who were studying towards a Cambridge uh, English exam. And so my role was basically to polish up the 
the the kids who were already showing that potential for English. Um, I was never thrown in a situation where I would have to try and help kids who had no interest or, or no proficiency in English. And so I guess it was kind of a walk in the park, but obviously I tried to uh, to work as hard at it as possible and, and be the, the best candidate that I that I could be. I know the listeners can't see my face right now, but I do have that confused look on it when you're talking about things like sumo wrestling. What was the point in getting you to work on things like that? What was the thought process from their point of view? I was never told this, but I gathered the point was there are certain students who you can bond with in an English class because uh, they're interested and motivated to study that subject. But there are other kids who are just not interested. And so if your only contact with them is within the confines of an English classroom, you're never going to form any kind of relationship with them. So I think I was in the other classes, the technology and the PE, in order to just um, be able to give them a bit of contact with a native speaker in an environment that was more um, more comfortable and more fun for them. So your nine months comes to an end. Tell us about how you came to deciding on your next step. Again, kind of like I said, I just coasted towards studying journalism. Um, over the course of my time in Spain, uh, I was working at this school with uh, one other um, native English uh, speaking teacher. And she was a girl from America who had worked in South Korea for two years. And she just told me every day that Korea is the place to go to, uh, to teach English and to have like a, a slightly more uh, free lifestyle than we were able to have living with students in Spain. And so just in the end, I thought, well, I'll give that a try. She speaks very highly of it. Um, and so I knew when I flew back to the UK at the end of the nine months that I would I would be applying at least to try and get a job in South Korea. For many people listening, the idea of moving halfway across the world would be incredibly scary. So how did you approach that mentally? I have no idea. I really don't know. I was always, like I told you, I was kind of too quiet and, and demotivated to, to be a journalist in the end. Um, I guess I just, it was always kind of incremental reasoning. With Barcelona, I knew it was only nine months. And then once I'd done nine months, I thought, well, in Korea, it's going to be a 12-month contract. But that's only a little bit more than I've just completed. So just gradually, I thought, this is possible. This is possible. Um, and so, yeah, it was never as, as kind of scary or daunting as, as it sounds for me. And in terms of finding jobs themselves, how did you go about it? Was there a recruiter? Did you go to friends? What way did you approach it? It was pretty easy because um, I think anybody who's got any um, desire to find a job or any experience in ESL will know the website uh, Dave's ESL Cafe. And that's such a well-run website that basically as long as you have a CV that looks um, that has a bachelor's degree and maybe some other teaching experience. Uh, you upload your resume and then the recruiters come to you. Um, and then you have the conversation with the recruiters, normally like a 10 minute test interview, uh, which I believe is is just to show that you're a native speaker really, or at least that you can speak English fluently. And then they pass you on to uh, 
like an interview stage where you talk to a few different schools and they decide whether or not they want to offer you a contract. So yeah, it was always like people were approaching you, uh, which made it extremely easy. I think from the point of me uploading my resume to Days ESL Cafe to agreeing on a contract with the school uh, that I signed up for was probably about a five or six week process, um, which isn't as bad as it sounds bearing in mind. There's a lot of paperwork to do in between those two things. Let's just focus up for a second on your first stint in Korea, because and just for the listeners, you're actually on your second stint now. How long did it take you to adjust to working in South Korea during your first stint? Yeah, I mean, obviously, straight away, I realized it was a more serious job than uh, teaching the kids how to sumo wrestle. Um, and the working hours were much, much more full on. Uh, I was working, um, I'd say, one o'clock to nine o'clock in the evening, which that's only eight hours. I know most jobs are, but there's a lot of planning to do outside of classes. And also when you're kind of thrown in the deep end and all of a sudden you're teaching about 200 students over the course of a week, um, there's a lot of kind of attempts at personal development that go on uh, or professional development that go on in your free time as well. So I found myself being extremely busy in the first few months when I was kind of um, finding my feet because I just found that the answer to that was just to plan everything in detail. And so I was just, I decided that if I couldn't be the most experienced teacher yet, I could at least be extremely prepared. And so there was that and the fact that there's more contact time with the kids. And so there's more uh, responsibility on you in a sense. Like if the kids aren't improving, then uh, that's not completely your fault. But with more contact time comes, yeah, more responsibility for you to help them to improve. So I really felt like it was a huge step up from, from anything I'd done before. Jack, just to kind of give a bit of context to this, because I'm obviously very conscious that not everyone listening is going to be completely au fait with the Korean education system. Can you just explain what kind of school you actually work in? Yeah, absolutely. I guess uh, the best way to, to describe it would be that the Korean public school system, uh, similar to the UK public school system, does have a foreign language program within which is, I think, two hours of studying English per week, which I guess is the same for the UK with uh, French, German or Spanish. Um, but over in South Korea, uh, after school language academies are incredibly popular. Um, people refer to them as private schools or academies or uh, language institutes, but there's one on every street uh, of varying quality. But yeah, it's, it's extremely common for kids to finish their public school at three o'clock and at some point during the evening uh, have one or two hours uh, of daily English tuition, uh, which is a huge step up in difficulty from the very basic stuff they learn at school. Uh, but this isn't necessarily something for intelligent kids or for rich parents. It's just it kind of becomes the norm because everybody feels like if their friends send their kids to these English academies, then they should do the same. Jack, you clearly have a passion for teaching. Has it crossed your mind to come home and be a traditional English teacher rather than sticking with teaching English as a foreign language? Uh, I looked at it 
I realized that um, if I wanted to return to the UK to teach, then uh, the Korean experience would mean very little unless I had um, some qualifications such as the CELTA uh, to be able to be, um, well, what do they call it, a trained teacher or they have a, a specific label for it. Um, and so I knew that I would have to go home and uh, study for a good, I think, year or 18 months uh, without any income um, in order to, uh, to get that. And I'd kind of fallen into the, the comfort of the lifestyle and career, and it just wasn't something that I, I thought would be a worthy investment in my time. Between your first stint in Korea and your second stint, you actually went home for a considerable amount of time, for about six months. Why didn't you initially want to stay and what did you do during your time at home back in the UK? <laughs> I went home and waited for a, a job offer to just land on my doorstep, I guess. I, w I was open to the idea that going back to the UK could be a permanent thing if I found uh, a job that I would be happy to do. But also I was very aware that maybe the reason I was going back to the UK was to realize how much I missed my job and my lifestyle in Korea. Um, and that would kind of be impetus to then, yeah, sign up for a, another job in South Korea. Because I was, I really enjoyed Korea. Um, the first job that I taught at with the 12 month contract, it was a good job. It was a good workplace, but it was nothing that I was uh, chomping at the bit to, to re-sign a contract. Like I knew that I could find another workplace as good, if not better than that one, uh, especially now with a year of teaching in, in Korea under my belt. So I went back to the UK and uh, in hindsight, I was just incredibly naive, I think. I just kind of enjoyed being back in the UK, catching up with people, but I didn't really do anything um, in terms of uh, actually chasing up and taking the initiative of trying to find a job. And so, man, I think it was about six or seven months when I realized that I'd run out of money and uh, I was going to be able to find another job in Korea, certainly much quicker than I could find a job I wanted to do in the UK. So, yeah, I just I I went back kind of out of necess necessity in the end, but also I was I was very happy to be returning. I was looking forward to it. And since you've come back to Korea you're now on I think it's your third year yeah it's it's my third year uh, since coming back uh, fourth year in total and I believe you're actually doing a master's to help with your career development I am yeah I just I guess I decided um, realistically uh, I will be kind of following this same career path for a long time now and that uh, it's becoming a very popular thing to do and so I knew that I would need something to uh, keep me ahead of the, the kind of chasing pack applying for jobs. Um, and so, yeah, this time I thought that's an 18 months that I can definitely uh, justify. And also I can do that while I'm still working and, and earning money. So it seemed like a no brainer, really. And in terms of your own career development over there, is there a way of developing and moving up or is there a ceiling with uh, your job and what you want to do next? Oh, there's a lot of facets to that, really. Uh, there's definitely a ceiling. So funnily enough, I mean, there would be two ways of initially uh, teaching in Korea, one of which is through the public school system. And 
the the longer you re-sign your contract and the longer you're with the public school system the more your pay will go up to a certain amount i think after about six years you get to the point where your pay can't go up anymore but you still have the same responsibilities in the job and with the private academies i guess if if you're with an employer who likes you and will give you a raise then that's good but generally the average salary of the language academies I think we'll start to drop soon because uh, they can be more uh, choosy with their applicants because there's just so many more applicants who are willing to to work for a little bit less. And again, your responsibilities would remain the same. Um, the, the next step would be to go on to either an international school or a university. And even then, there are two tiers of university job. There's the opening tier would kind of be like a glorified public school job where you're just teaching uh, students of other courses who are taking a mandatory uh, English class per week. And then I guess if you succeeded at that, you would go on to to actually be a teacher on the English courses at university. Um, and I guess that would be as far as you can go. Uh, I do know people who have opened their own language academies. I guess that helps if you're uh, if you have like a very good friend or business partner who's Korean. Or maybe if you marry uh, someone in Korea, that's an option open to you too. But I think that's incredibly risky. So yeah, there are various ceilings. Um, and I think people do tend to reach those ceilings pretty quickly once they've uh, been like a serious teacher in South Korea for uh, a handful, like four or five years. And I know I just asked you about kind of career development, but you know, I think it's probably worth noting as well that where you're at at the moment, there are some fantastic benefits um, to doing the job you do in terms of pay in terms of uh, having your accommodation paid for so there are some great general benefits to where you're at right now anyway isn't there yeah i guess um one of the big things when i returned from the uk for that like seven month unemployed spell i came back to korea ended up with um a really cool employer who um who rented a really a, a brand new apartment for me and it's also worth saying, uh, whether or not you're working with a public school or a private academy here, um, the salary on your, on your contract doesn't include rent and they will find accommodation for you. So you don't have to go through like a, any real estate. You don't have to pay for rent. It's just it's included in the package. And I remember being back in Korea and just getting this you know new apartment which is you know it's tiny it's a one bedroom studio thing but i don't need anything more than that and i was sitting in this new place thinking my friends at home in the uk um very few of them have their own accommodation my name's not on the contract but it's my private place um and i think just cost of living wise to live in the uk and to have you know just a small apartment like this in a in a relatively um uptown area would be incredibly expensive. So all of those kind of benefits, for sure, they add up, definitely. Jack, one of the things that I think is important to think about when you're moving abroad, particularly if it's a country that you're you you know you're not familiar with uh, or don't have too much kind of inside information on, um, is the kind of differences in maybe work conditions and, and work laws and things like that. How different has it been working where you're working now in comparison to places you've previously worked? And what has been your general experience of the differences between those different work environments? Uh, I guess you really do enter a lottery here. Um, I've been very lucky 
that the two employers that I've worked with have have really kind of appreciated my efforts and they've treated me well. But then I've heard uh, more often than not the sense that you are replaceable here. And so um, they kind of have the right to drop extra work on you without notice or ask you to do things outside of your contract with the understanding that if you refuse, then you're on a 12-month contract anyway, and they can just decide to tell you we're going to go with someone new at the end of this. Um, So, yeah, I think, I guess with any job, there are good employers and bad employers, um, but I do think I've been extremely fortunate to have found uh, two good ones thus far. And looking back at your own career so far, is there any advice you would give to someone who is in the situation where they're trying to figure out what to do next? I guess the main advice would be, um, it, it's, I think it's very easy to panic if at the end of a three-year and, and a big money investment in, in studying a degree um, with the intention of just kind of, a lot of people take a degree because they want to walk into a job straight afterwards. And so when that turns out not to be the case, or if you then decide that it's not something you want to work in, I think it's very easy to start panicking about it. Um, but I'd say that's just a product of having to make such a big decision at a very young age. And I think you've also got to realize that um, a degree shows that you've had the commitment necessary to, to finish a three-year undertaking. Um, most of the time, it, it shows that you've learned some very um, kind of some crossover skills that you can use in, in more employment opportunities than you'll first realize. Um, and there's always something there's always something you'll find i think that's the thing if you if you look hard enough especially nowadays i think there are more options open to people um and so yeah just kind of keep on looking and realize that even if you're never going to work in the topic in which you've studied uh you've still done something that's that kind of puts you in a positive light for an employer in a in a different career path Jack, as my last question and a possible tangent from the one I just asked, is there anything you know now that you wish you had known when you left university? Um, I guess there's not necessarily anything I wish I'd known. I wish I'd had a little bit more time. Um, The year that I was applying for university was also the year that they tripled the tuition fees. And so I was the final year whereby I was paying uh, like £3,000 a year. And so I had initially hoped to take a year out before um, before committing to university. I knew that I'd go to university. I probably still would have taken the same course. So I guess it's kind of immaterial. But it would have been nice to have a little bit extra time. Um, but in the end, my hand was forced because obviously I didn't want to have to pay three times the amount. So I went straight into it. I guess from there everything just again kind of coasted onwards and I ended up in a in a a few different opportunities which have led me up to where I am now but it's hard to say that there's there's something that if I had known it it would have gone differently Um, I guess the the big thing would have been it would have been cool if there was some kind of system where I could have done some work experience before studying the topic because by the time I was in a newsroom uh, it was kind of too late. So uh, I think maybe that's an idea. If 
if it would be at all possible in terms of time and resources. Given the ethos of this podcast, I'm obviously very pro-careers education and planning for the future, but I think Jack's interview shows that that's not the only way to approach your career. Jack went to Spain, it sounds to me anyway, partly as a bit of an adventure, and then another door opened to go to Korea. He's been there four years now and seems to love it. He's developing career-wise, he's doing further study, and he's got a great life. So... As much as I want to promote you taking control as much as you can within your own life, I'm also aware that some of the best opportunities out there for some of the people listening might just be very random. They might just fall in their lap and it might be just a case of seeing where something leads you. Just something to think about. I'm Keenan Sullivan. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Graduate Compass. Remember, if there is a degree subject or specific industry you would like to be featured on any future episodes, then we would love to hear from you and know what you are trying to find out. Our email is info at graduatecompass.ie.